1: Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have an excellent guest today, Jeffrey Tucker from Liberty.me. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's Fun to see you again, Tracy. Yeah, good to see you. So, what brought you into Bitcoin, into the Austrian School of Economics? Just this fascination that you have. Well, had? I like to think that we're living through still in the era of
2: incredulity concerning Bitcoin. People, uh, average people, just still don't believe that it's possible, that it really exists, or that it has a value based on its utility. You know, this, this is still a common belief, and I used to hold that belief back in 2010 and 2011 i had read a number of articles about it, but uh, I had been convinced previously that it was not possible to generate a money through computer code, you know, and certainly not uh, a money that emerged purely from a market in in an era in which, you know, we have well-established monies, national currencies. And I didn't think that it could really work, you know? And so I felt like I was very much of a student of Satoshi come Well, I guess it was the early part of 2013. I wanted to believe it, you know, but I still didn't. So I had to do a lot of study. I had to throw myself into cryptography and uh, peer-to-peer networks and distributed systems and open source software, all these different features, and integrate that with my previous understanding of monetary theory. And I went through something like two months of intellectual upheaval
1: just to come to terms with the fact that it existed. Yeah, I mean, when we look at the sheer size and scope and genius of Satoshi, I mean, he's touching on so many different aspects of human knowledge here. We've got mathematics and cryptography, we've got computer science, distributed systems, which is even a much more complicated niche part of computer science. Monetary theory, monetary history, yeah, monetary and that's economics. The stuff I'm interested in is how it fits in with monetary theory and
2: monetary history. Economists have yet to come to terms with what's happened. You know, it's very interesting. You're starting to see now the academic literature deal a little bit more with cryptocurrency, but still the mainstream journals haven't really uh, run. Uh, articles
1: on it yet. Do you, you only see them as the posted as working papers, and that sort of thing. Well, I think one of the parts of this is, one, if you want to know the truth about money, you have to learn it on your own. It's simply not taught in university anywhere. Even the most basic fundamental facts of monetary history are not taught anywhere. Uh, for example, I was talking with Steve Waterhouse. He's chief technology officer at Pantera, you know, major fund investing in Bitcoin. He's a PhD from Oxford, and I asked him, well, you know, who invented the gold standard? He was like, oh, I I don't know. I was like, no, come on, like, give me a serious answer. He's like, ah, it's some British dude. And I was like, oh, some British dude. I was like, who? And he's like, look, I don't know. I was like, "You, you had this scholarship of Isaac Newton when you were going to Oxford, and you didn't know that Isaac Newton invented the gold standard. Like right. Really? Yeah. Really? You yeah. didn't know that one of our preeminent scientists who changed our entire view and concept of the universe developed the foundational monetary infrastructure that has lasted even until today because we still have central banks holding physical gold in the vaults as a relic of Bretton Woods, as a relic of these other gold exchange standards, which ultimately go back to Isaac Newton as master of the men when he developed the gold standard. And so, I mean, is there anything you kind of want to talk about in this area of monetary economics and monetary well, history? Think, and like, what, what, what do people just not know? And right, they don't know they don't know
2: it. Right. Well, and I think uh, the point you're making is, is very interesting. Um, you know, the financial systems and monetary systems become so enormously complicated now, it's not possible for anyone to fully understand them, really. And so people get very confused about what money is and what it's supposed to be and what banking is and how it's supposed to function. One of the beauties of, of cryptocurrency is that it's providing a kind of a nice template for understanding. We're, we're beginning to understand the fundamentals of what money is and what it does and what banking is and what it does. And it's, it's changing our sense of things. I mean, uh, I don't think there's any doubt that if the dollar were reintroduced today, you know, uh, as a new currency, it probably would not be accepted by anybody because it it doesn't have the features that you want for money. For one thing, uh, scarcity, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, paper currency just doesn't have that scarcity. Uh, It would not be trusted. One of the reasons cryptocurrency is trusted is that you can follow precisely its creation rate. You know where they all are. You it's know exactly.
1: mathematically provable.
2: Yeah, and, and it's built into the protocol. So you, everything's completely open source. You can know everything. It's a lot more open source, for example, than the Federal Reserve.
1: Right? <laughs> well, for Federal Reserve, I mean, what, what's happening there? We got pre-mined scam. We got We don't know the distribution rate. The decisions are being made behind closed doors. Uh, not necessarily subject to public perception even. Right. And then, like, out of nowhere, these central banks will completely reverse their policies like the Swiss National Bank did. Right. And just throw massive turmoil into right. the market, bankrupting a- businesses, bankrupting yeah. uh, currency trading businesses, in addition to the manufacturers that are domestic. I mean, you it's, know, it's crazy. crazy.
2: Like the central bankers, you never know what policies are going to adopt. And you, you never really know if the policies they adopt are going to actually be realized in the real world. Like one of the things that central banks can't control is um, the velocity of money which has plummeted since 2008, making it essentially impossible for the central banks to create as much money as they've attempted to. So they can fill the coffers of the banks up with as, as many newly created notes as they want. We're getting them out on the street. is a different problem entirely.
1: One of the uh, self-regulating mechanisms in Bitcoin, because we have the 10-minute block reward and uh, as the velocity increases, it, it decreases the actual demand for the Bitcoins. And so it has a self-regulating effect on the price. And we have so many of these self-correcting, self-regulating aspects in Bitcoin that harness the natural laws of economics, just like the original gold standard did that Isaac Newton had introduced. It, just this it's natural Newtonian-type balancing. Yeah. And he really – I think that Satoshi must have uh,
2: studied the operation of the gold standard when he put together the protocol. I mean, even the mining, which
1: is a a metaphor, really, in the end. Well, we can um, see that Satoshi, he obviously studied tons of this and had particular beliefs on it. For example, uh, his Ning profile, he chose a particular birthday. And it was, uh, I think, like April April something in 1975. And it happened to be that the date in April was when Franklin Roosevelt issued Executive Order 6102, And 1975 was when uh, Nixon uh, got rid of the illegality of Americans holding gold. So, you know, Satoshi left these little Easter eggs all over the place. I'm sure that there's an Easter egg there about Isaac Newton just waiting to be found. You know, he was so much more advanced
2: even than I thought. I thought I knew everything there was to know about money and monetary policy. I've been studying it since I was, uh, I mean, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on the topic. It was a huge paper on the gold standard. I thought there was nothing else for me to learn. Uh, but cryptocurrency really challenged me fundamentally to rethink what I thought I knew already, and it took me really upwards of a year to fully integrate the existence of cryptocurrency with my with my existing theoretical apparatus. It took a long time to kind of think it think it through, which is a process that this generation is going to have to go through. But in the future, it's not, we will people will not be worrying about well, the things that we worry about. it would
1: probably not. be taught in the beginning curriculum.
2: Yeah, you know? <laughs> and also people will just be using it. it's just like electricity. Now we you know if we want the lights to go on, we press a button. You know, we flip a switch, and it causes the lights to go on. Nobody questions how this happens. But in the early age of Bitcoin, which is we're still very early in the process, people do have a desire to understand it and to think it through because. Really, there's still a lot of people that don't believe. Did you notice this recently? You know, we've gone through a big price correction in 2014, and in early 2015, and once again, people are saying, "Well, you oh, know, Bitcoin, it, Bitcoin is Bitcoin, dead. Yeah, Bitcoin is dead." You know, and it gets so boring because you know once you've lived through those cycles, when I
1: lived through all of them, yeah, you lived through all of them. So there was
2: never a moment when you just fundamentally panicked. Because my first one, I actually was terrified when it went from. I think it was up to about 260 and then it fell back yeah. to 80. I sweated it
1: out that day, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I th- there were times, uh, you know, when there's like $300 of volume in the whole day on the chart. And may, maybe it was all my volume, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I don't talk about how many bitcoins I may or may not have. But, but it's
2: still a relatively thin but, thin market today.
1: Yeah, it is. A, it is relatively thin. But I think we've largely passed the point of no return. There, there was a time, you know, when when I thought Bitcoin may or may not survive. You know, there there were a lot more weak points uh, all across the the system, but. The community is so large now. The code is so distributed. So many developers are working on projects and working on code. There aren't really single points that can be taken out anymore, uh, whether it's big mining nodes or companies. You know, Mount Gox failed. It didn't take Bitcoin down. Um, and so all of that, I think, like the network effects of Bitcoin have just taken such deep hold and it's been growing so fast that I think is largely past the point of no return. I, I think it will be the protocol that is developed for and adopted for transferring value over the Internet. Now, how it will mutate uh, before it fully realizes that, we you know, a lot of speculation. But I don't see any other protocol anywhere close on the horizon that will be able to supplant it.
2: Yeah, and eventually, over the long term, Bitcoin may not survive. It could, it could be something else. I think what matters here is the technology. It's the knowledge, as you say. Um, now that we have that knowledge and we know how to transfer value peer to peer, to commodify information and make that valuable and uh, transfer it, you know, on a geographically non-contiguous basis anywhere in the world, the in foreign, a way that's non Solar system or universe,
1: for that matter. Yeah.
2: Non-forgeable, non-reproducible, that's amazing. And I have to say that that's what convinced me when I first began to look at, this is February 2013. There wasn't nearly as much information out there about Bitcoin as there is now. You know, you have a lot of very good introductory articles and people explaining it in plain English and everything. But in February 2013, it was actually hard to find out uh, things. And I had to dig very deeply. And I finally found out this point about the non reproducibility of the individual unit, the monetary unit of Bitcoin. I found it out from a, a wicked article in, in Wired Magazine where they were, again, announcing Bitcoin's death. And it was, you know, paragraph 18 or something like that, where it just mentioned in passing that Bitcoin had
1: solved the double spending problem. You know. And because you had this background in a lot of areas of knowledge, you were actually able to understand, holy cow, this is a big deal. Yeah, that, that one paragraph just blew my mind. And they call it the double spending problem. It, that's
2: a funny word for it, really. But what, what it really means is the reproducibility problem. You know, the, the digital realm is famous for its reproducibility. That's why it's so valuable. Anything
1: Once something's on the Internet, you can create trillions of copies of it, and, and well, that's beautiful. Well, I mean, yeah, the Byzantine General's problem, the the solution that proof-of-work is introduced, the whole concept of distributed consensus, uh, that's a major, major breakthrough. Uh, it's plagued computer scientists for, for decades now. Yeah, and to write... Uh, that kind of scarcity
2: into the code and put it up on the blockchain so that it's carefully monitored. I remember I had become convinced, you know, uh, something, something like March, you know, uh, 2013. I was all in. And so I began to write articles about it, like somebody who just discovered it for the first time, you know. And then I, I remember I was sitting there one night in April when a new block uh, was introduced Without a sufficient number of confirmations, and um, the community started going nuts, and and I yeah, was watching the, this the inadvertent happened. hard fork. Yeah, uh, you
1: remember this? Oh yeah, it was like two o'clock in the morning, and yeah. like everybody who's somebody, their phone just starts lighting. Up I know with these it text was crazy, it and I was, was really going kind of nuts. I was <laughs>
2: watching this happen, and the, yeah, the thing uh, forked, and it all and the price dipped, right? But it only lasted about twenty minutes, I think.
1: Well, that's because. Uh, everybody's on the IRC channel, all the emergency first responders, like, we show up, bam. And, and SIPA actually figures out, he diagnoses the problem, and then everybody kind of uh, discusses, and we have a, a potential solution all within, like, five minutes, right. right? Because when you can bring this amount of intellectual brain power to bear on a problem, And within 23 minutes, I think, the solution had been implemented. The people who needed to be contacted had been. And it took about another six hours for the chain to get overtaken and then the history to all merge back together. But at the end of the day, like the end consumer was not affected in any way. Some miners were slightly affected, but we actually raised some money and compensated them uh, for what they uh, would have lost. And there's an analogy of these different operating systems and version control systems, and one of them is Git Airlines that they talk about. And with Git Airlines uh, referring to GitHub and this open source version control system, the people build the airplane and they take off in it and they they actually take apart parts of the airplane and rebuild it while they're in the middle of flight. And sometimes the whole plane just like starts spiraling down to the ground and looks like it's going to crash. And then the programmers they actually just like build a time machine and go back in time and like Mm -hmm. fix the problem. right? Right. People don't understand just how extensible Bitcoin is in the sense of how resilient we can be in Fixing problems that do come along. And the it. network is watched so closely and so carefully. Oh, yeah.
2: And even the slightest problem, I mean, everybody is seriously incentivized to discover anything.
1: I learned a lot from being there at that moment of that, what'd you call it, the hard fork? It was an inadvertent hard fork. Inadvertent because hard fork. we do hard fork the network occasionally. We try not to, uh, the developers. Uh, but this time, because there had been a change in the database use and like it had created an inadvertent hard fork, Bitcoin would have continued on. But it could have been very disruptive to Overall consensus within the community, but it's beautiful to watch that taking place because you realize oh, yeah. just how carefully watched this thing is,
2: and it's hard to explain to people. I mean, you compare that with like modern monetary
1: policy. Oh yeah, let's uh, let's go in and say, hey, you got to give us seven hundred billion dollars or the world ends. <laughs>
2: well, I, you know, I think how much how much new money has been created over the last five years? Oh it's my goodness, like, it's like
1: three trillion or something. Like oh, that. It, maybe. It's well, more. are we talking just at the Fed, or are we talking yeah. with the ECB and the oh, and Japan? Yeah. And, right. I mean and then what about all the additional leverage and oh. Things like that. And
2: nobody really knows where it goes or what's going on. I mean, you find out about a month later. Well, even
1: scarier, we don't know who owns what. I mean, when we look at chains of title on houses or cars or airplanes or stocks or bonds or like other financial assets out there, we don't know who owns what. We don't know what has been pledged against what. I mean, we don't know how encumbered things are. They can't even count up the money stock anymore. Yeah. In in
2: fact, people don't even have a viable agreed upon definition of what money is. Well, Dr.
1: Vieira's book. Pieces of eight, and then where he wrote the article, "What is a dollar?" and basically under federal laws, it's unintelligible. There's no definition of the dollar. No, yet. and the Fed
2: has no clue. I mean, you can you can pick your measurement. You know, it's all you can look at it at, at St. Louis Fed, um, but it all depends on how you want to measure it, and you don't ever know if it's going up or going down, or you know, uh, it depends on what you call the dollar, really. But uh, in the Bitcoin world, everything's so extremely precise, and the slightest error. You know, the slightest misstep in the blockchain, and everybody's all over it, you know, to be the guy who finds the flaw is to be immediately famous and, and wonderful in the Bitcoin community, you know, that's amazing. That's, that's the right kind of policy, if you want to, if you want to call it a policy. I think what we've learned from Satoshi and from our experience with cryptocurrency is that really this kind of centralized management strategies are not workable as compared to this decentralized protocol-based monetary policy, if you want to call it that. I really think that in an alternative universe, which I hope we get to someday, you could have all the world's currencies based on a sort of crypto model. On blockchain technology. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. I think it could happen. And it may eventually happen. It's so much superior to very old-fashioned, trust-based, nationalized currencies. You know, these things are really old-fashioned. Well, they're just obsolete. They really are yeah. in a digital age. And we have to break the network effect of it. But I believe that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies can actually break the network effect, mainly because the cost of transactions are so much less, and it's so verifiable, and it's so
1: inclusive, too, which is the other amazing yeah, thing. One, even better, you know who owns what. You know, yeah. what's in what address? Uh, in our current system, we don't know who has what. People and, have no clue what they actually are entitled to. You know, we have this deposit insurance, which ensures your deposits up to a certain amount. But, you know, you don't. But don't then the get, Cromney bus bill, like now the depositors have been superseded by particular bondholders. Yeah. And bail ins, and yeah, uh, and then I mean, even worse, if you got another layer of abstraction with someone else between you and your assets with something like an IRA or 401k, uh, I mean, we just don't know who owns No, I and mean, the see if it had to pay out everybody at the same time, it would Chris be immediately? Well, I think I think it's got 38 billion. Dollars, <laughs> uh, and it's insuring thirteen trillion dollars yeah, or something. Yeah, I mean, right. and the feds, the feds' balance sheet itself is down to like a one point two six assets to uh, debt ratio. So I mean, like the feds never been more leveraged than it currently is. And then we got customer segregated accounts that are supposed to be sacrosanct that you can just hypothecate and rehypothecate like MF Global and John Corzine. We just don't know who owns what or how it's been pledged or, like, who's got claim on it. No, when
2: you start to look at the details of modern money and finance, it's scary, actually. You just wonder, you know, what's going to be the
1: event that causes, you know, the run? Well, I mean, well, well, we all know the first rule of panic. You do it first. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like... Kyle Bass was talking about it. Uh, he's one of the fiduciaries for a big pension fund in Texas and he had been touring the Comex and looking at where the gold is vaulted and he you know he's like it's actually kind of weird, you know, it's not like it's in cages and marked off it's like here's a bar over here and a bar over there and like no rhyme or reason to it. And then he's talking with the manager about there's $80 billion in the futures markets, but only like 2 to $3 billion in the deliverables. And he's like, well, you know, what if like more than kind of the average decides to take possession of the physical? And he's like, oh, well, it'll just be a function of price. And Kyle Bass is like, oh, that's nice. Give me my billion dollars of gold. Because, yeah, right, I mean, right. nine-tenths of the law is possession, right? So, like, if four or five or ten or a hundred people all have ownership or the asset is encumbered to someone – and everybody's got rights to it. Well, at the end of the day, if if you've got rights just as good as everybody else's, but you've actually got possession of the asset, then you're in a lot better position. Right. <laughs> have you thought about this, Chase? You know, um, in the last big financial crisis we
2: faced was 2008. You know, that was when things got really messy and very scary. I wonder what would have happened had uh, Bitcoin been around already in existence and already valued as it is today, in the fall of 2008, what would have happened to the price?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had actually just finished my book, The Great Credit Contraction. I published it March of 2009, so two months after Bitcoin came out. And I said, The Great Credit Contraction had begun. And in The Great Credit Contraction, we're seeking safety and liquidity. That's one of the reasons velocity is so low is because capital is just parked in treasuries because those are considered extremely safe. But we don't know how much the two-year particularly has been hypothecated and rehypothecated. So we don't know the quality collateral in the system. Last time it was money moving out of the money market funds and and those breaking the buck that kind of seized the system up. But this time around, I think it's a run on the good collateral. And I think the New York Fed particularly is very worried about this. And when it comes to the custodians, whether it's the state streets or, you know, long-term capital management or Bank of New York Mellon, I think there's increasingly being a run on the good collateral. And so if individuals can remove the risk between them and their assets, if they can just get rid of any hypothecation or rehypothecation that's happened with their assets, then they know what they own and they know it's not encumbered. And with Bitcoin, this is particularly easy to do. Because unlike gold, you know, you want to take possession of the gold like the Chinese are doing. You have to melt it down and reassay it and uh, figure out that you actually got the gold. You can check the blockchain and instantly verify the quantity and the quality of the Bitcoins. That's right. And there is nothing like a good bank run to focus the mind. That's so you true, know, isn't we, it? We've seen it with Mt. Gox and Bitstamp and IndyMac and Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, AIG. You know, that's why AIG wasn't allowed to fail is because they were the collateral backstop. And so I think what's happening is, is the good collateral is increasingly getting taken out of the system, and that could very well precipitate our next major crisis, which Bitcoin is there. It's like, well, just put it in my address on the blockchain. I mean, if I own it and you've got it and I can take possession of it, yeah, stick it over there right now. I'll take possession of it. And if Bitstamp or Mt. Gox or whoever owes four or five people the same Bitcoins or 100 people the same Bitcoins, Yeah, somebody's left holding the bag. So, of course, if you're going to panic, do it first. So I think we're going to see an increasing return to the safety and liquidity. And Bitcoin, every day it's around, every day it proves that it's worthy of the safety. And the more the network effects take place, you know, Microsoft accepting Bitcoin with BitPay, all of these merchants, like those are all network effects. That's a liquidity. And so Bitcoin could be very much the primary solution in terms of safety and liquidity that's needed as a solution in this great credit contraction. I've noticed over the last five years, really over the last two years, there's increased interest in Bitcoin as a safe haven relative to gold. Better than Hibernias and Ukraine, better than Venezuelan Bolivars, Argentine Pesos. And we don't know what the institutions are going to do. I mean, obviously, if they've got the private keys on your two-year treasuries or on your bank accounts. And if the government says, hey, you got to use the private keys to give us that to your treasury, yeah, the banks are going to do it because they hold the private keys. Bitcoin is much, much, much more difficult for the government to misappropriate or redirect because they don't control the private keys to it.
2: Right. Now, earlier you said something about
1: Bitstamp and a few other exchanges. Were you implying that they hold fractional reserves? Well, Bitstamp uh, lost $5 million worth of... Uh, customer funds, yeah recently a couple of weeks ago, yeah, and whether they have fractional reserves or not, we don't know because unfortunately, and I talked about this extensively at the coin summit panel I was on, uh, we need new standards in terms of information security standards, crypto standards to, to build out the this whole concept of crypto auditing. So we're going to be needing to merge different disciplines. But isn't disciplines. there a
2: consensus within
1: the Bitcoin community that full reserves equal good business? Oh, yeah, yeah. Having 100% reserves. Like we did uh, Kraken, who I'm invested in. We actually produced the first audit for our crypto reserves. And we did like a Merkle tree And you could figure out, like, whether your Bitcoins were included in our total balance without us also disclosing the total balance because that could be a security risk. Jesse Powell and I talked about it in, I think, episode 124. Uh, But I don't necessarily think the problem is with the fractional reserving. I think the problem is we need explicit informed consent by individuals to of be engaged course. in the fractional resuming yeah. and yeah. we don't have that in the current
2: system. I see. Well, you know, there's a wonderful website I enjoy looking through called Bad Bitcoin. I think it's dot com or maybe it's dot org. I don't know if you've looked at it, but it's no, a, I haven't even Yeah, heard it's it. fun, but it's a complete list of Bitcoin scams, right? And <laughs> and there are really thousands of them. Oh know? yeah. All but over what's the place. what's funny is that they all kind of have some or, an, or another version of the same thing. What they want is for you to give up your Bitcoin in exchange for which they're going to give you a high rate of return. Maybe it's from mining. Maybe it's from investing, you know, um,
1: lending them on margin or whatever. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Or maybe playing futures or whatever, whatever the claim is, they're going to give you a higher rate of return than you would otherwise get just by, by holding them. Um, and that's what they want. They want your Bitcoin and maybe you, you give it to them one time. They, they promise you access to them. You know, at some <laughs> oh, Of way. course, they do. Yeah, <laughs> and and maybe they'll they'll uh, if you test the system once or twice, they will you know give you that access. But at some point, you know, they start delaying the payment, or you know, something goes wrong, and these are scams. But what, what's interesting to me, though, if you look through them, and I enjoyed this the other day, just looking through, really, there, I think there may be a thousand or something uh, listed there. But the funny thing about it is that most of the Bitcoin, what they call scams, have a lot in common. With actually conventional commercial banking. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean So in the Bitcoin world what's considered criminal is considered completely
1: conventional <laughs> in the mainstream world, you well, know. <laughs> and we and we, we used to have a, a distinguishment between payment banks and uh, depository banks. Yeah. You know, and this actually gets to one of the core reasons that I funded Armory. You know, there wasn't necessarily a business model when I funded it, but I wanted the software created that was free for individuals to use where they could safely and securely store the private keys to their own bitcoins. Mm -hmm. Because what that would do is it would place out there in the market, a silent sentinel that could always demand possession of the bitcoins if the individuals wanted to Right? like a silent sentinel. And then, you know, if someone's running their fractional reserve system or their Ponzi scam or like whatever it is, you know, Get a grip on your bitcoins. You know, just demand delivery, and you can immediately like figure out whether they're solvent or not. That's right. And if they don't give you your bitcoins, we got a problem. Yeah, bank runs in the bitcoin world—they're could I mean, they're not really banks, right? Yeah, uh, but any run on collateral or run on assets or any mm-hmm. of those. Like, so now when people are keeping money in their four hundred one ks or their IRAs or they're keeping money in their bank or in their securities account or in whatever it is, they've now decided to knowingly or unknowingly, they're taking on additional risk for additional profit when instead they could reduce everything to Bitcoin and take possession of the physical keys themselves in their armory wallet and do it for free. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to place a silent sentinel out there where where the individual could literally take the private keys to the wealth and put them into the cold storage. You know, you could be killed and your gold taken, and the and the person who killed you like, actually gets the purchasing power from the gold. But if you've got the Bitcoins in your Armory wallet, like they can't just kill you. I mean, they got to get your cooperation to get those Bitcoins out in order for them to actually realize the purchasing power of those Mm -hmm. Bitcoins. So it acts very much like a silent sentinel out there to just stand watch and provide people an opportunity or an alternative to uh, keeping their capital in some other asset. But for the most part, the mainstream exchanges have been very reputable ever
2: since the failure of Mt. Gox. There's been a, a great deal of risk aversion, I would say. In, in oh, the yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, and it's good. It's, it's a good thing. You know, for two years before the failure of Mt. Gox, people were hoping that it was going to die. Yeah, know, they and were convinced and
1: that it was something. And the pricing mechanism kind of pointed to it. It's Yeah, uh,
2: yeah that was interesting in the final days, right? Uh, At some point, uh, Mount Gox's exchange rates completely diverge from the world Mm -hmm. community consensus. Yeah, Yeah.
1: so, I mean, I think it's very much, you know, if you want to crawl out of your cold storage and go take on additional risk, you know, hopefully... you're going to be properly compensated for that. That's right. And
2: But uh, but as you say, the, the, the key is understanding the difference between ownership and transferring that ownership in exchange for which you get supposedly a promise of higher return but also higher risk. This is what's lost in modern monetary systems, the distinction between risk and, and property, really, between yeah. ownership and speculation.
1: Right, and, and the other big problem is we've never had the ability to – as individuals, to control the private keys ourselves. You know, because with our bank account, we have beneficial ownership, but we don't hold the private keys. No. We still got to go ask for permission and fill out a we big do. form to wire the money around. That's right. And but pay with fees B- and, and whatever. pay fees or whatever. But with Bitcoin, you literally hold the private keys to the wealth yourself. And I yeah. think that's part of the big, big deal uh, on why it can be so much safer. Because, mm-hmm. like with gold, you still got to entrust somebody to store the gold. You know, unless you're going to go bury it in your own yard. The
2: more I think about it, the more I realize that, you know, there are many features that money has traditionally had, you know, fungibility and and scarcity, durability, and so on. But the thing that Bitcoin has added as a feature of money that didn't previously exist is that Bitcoin is weightless. Transportable. And, and, of course, infinitely portable. And it takes up no space whatsoever except for just pure memory space. That's very important because you eliminate, actually, the warehousing uh, uh, and those are
1: those are additional risks which decrease the safety of assets that do require that. Mm-hmm. You know whether it's art or diamonds or well, gold. What is or the
2: origin of banking? I mean, you have to go back to the Middle Ages. Yeah, and custodianship. See that, yeah, it all began in a kind of a warehousing feature, and then the speculative element of lending got mixed in with the warehousing function. And you know, there's a lot of court precedent there, and and uh, judges had to decide: Do you own? You know what you warehoused or not, and for the most part, they said you don't.
1: When we split it up between beneficial ownership and legal ownership, yeah. And, but with Bitcoin, bam, you take possession of the private keys. Like you don't got to trust even the the. The warehouse it restores anymore.
2: the idea of money as property I, that's the theme of my topic i am going to uh, give today here at this conference is about money as real private property and which we've lost we have lost that sense yeah. we, we tend to think of it as, as a government created uh, social good to which we have access you know depending
1: on the policies of you know, the uh, Federal Reserve or, or the Treasury or, or whatever. When well, and it, it really, it returns the right to money or the right to currency to the people, mm-hmm. which currently vests with the government. And it's so disruptive because we're defining property rights with software code, not with legal code. Oh, I know. And, right? and that is just so disruptive. It's mind-blowing. It's, 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 really it's hard to wrap your brain around it, really. I mean,
2: even now, we're 20 years, I would say, into the digital age people are still very confused about uh, what is the value of code, you know, what is the value of information. Uh, there's still a great deal of incredulity out there about the fact that Facebook makes money or that
1: Amazon actually functions. As if you know. making money is a bad thing. <laughs> right, right, right. So
2: people are still not quite believers. I mean, the average person on the street is not a, not a believer. They think that you have to be you know, growing corn or you know, laying concrete or putting up bricks or whatever to be creating value. Bitcoin has really challenged us uh, in sort of fundamental ways to come to terms with the digital age, to come to terms with the the new form of value in the world, which is really all about information. It's always been about information, but the digital age has sort of made that more real to us.
1: Yeah, real is going to change. You know, people got to just (laughs) readapt. Yeah. Well, it's part of our ability to abstract, which makes us different from animals. You know, our ability to abstract and kind of... uh, See things in different layers or, or in more complexity.
2: Now, the other thing that's amazing to me about about this whole crypto revolution is that it's an inclusive um, kind of enterprise. You know, up to now we've kind of just recognized or just sort of come to terms with the fact that there's excluded and there's included, and uh, in this sort of heavily cartelized system, you know, that maybe there are two billion people in the world that have access to to banks and credit cards and that sort of thing. And we just, you know, have uh, blown off the other 5 billion. Uh, you know, crypto actually um, holds out the prospect of including them in the global division of labor, which is an extraordinary thing.
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's so exciting. You know, we, we've kind of gone over our time, but what are you most optimistic about in in this space, just in general?
2: Well, I'm most optimistic particularly about this inclusion point. I, I think that once cellular technology sort of spreads all over the world, which it is, Everybody's going to have access to this new system of money and banking to include all kinds of new people and talents and skills into global prosperity and that's going to be amazing I think we're going to see it we're going to look back at ten years from now and say oh my god this is this is amazing this is a, a brand new world so that's what i'm I'm most looking forward to it's It's not so much the um Bitcoin adoption in the developed world, but I would say in the the underdeveloped or development world,
1: that that excites me the most. Well, wonderful. We've had Jeffrey Tucker, founder and CEO of Liberty.me. Thanks for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Trace.
0: Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin Guide at freebitcoinguide.com. question or suggestion record your voice at bitcoin.kn don't be shy to help the show share bitcoin.kn with friends post about it on reddit and otherwise spam the interwebs your itunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.